Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, August 17th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to do another mini water cooler episode. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film senior writer and chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Hello. Chris, how are you? All right. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I think this is the first time we've had you on for these little mini water coolers. It's, as you know, we've been very busy behind the scenes at Slash Home. It's been next to impossible to get everybody back uh, for a you know a, an old school water cooler. But I, I like what we've been doing here, doing these little one-off episodes. Hopefully the uh, listeners enjoy them as well. So uh, let's dive into what you've been doing. Uh, you haven't been reading or doing anything, Chris? I know you went on vacation recently. How was that? Oh, yeah. I did go on vacation. I forgot to put that on here. Uh, it was fine. It was... Uh... <laughs> You know, my idea, I know a lot of people, they go on vacation and they're like, we got to do stuff. We got to go whitewater rafting and we got to (laughs) go bungee jumping and, you know, all this shit. And that's fine. But my idea of vacation is I do absolutely nothing. I don't want to do a goddamn thing. So uh, my, you know, we, my family um, has, has a beach house and I know that makes it sound like I'm like some bougie rich person, but (laughs) trust me, I'm not. And neither is my family. And this isn't like, you know a mansion on the beach. When I say this is a beach house, I mean, it's a house that is 
closer to the beach than my normal house. <laughs> we're, so, we're not talking uh, Nicholas Sparks level yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, there, you know, there's it's like a private beach with like a jacuzzi and stuff like that. You know, it's it's a house near the beach. So uh, every summer we get to use that for uh, a few days, and uh, it's it's in this town called Brigantine, which is at the Jersey Shore. And um, some some towns in the Jersey Shore are are very popular and crowded. And others like Brigantine, they're basically like for old people. And that's my idea. You know, oh, man. I, I mean, obviously, I don't have a choice because it's a free house. And I, I'm not going to be like, <laughs> I'm not going here. But even if I I had to pick, I would probably pick Brigantine just because it's so quiet. And it's, you know, there aren't a lot of people there. There's no like, you know, boardwalks. There's not like there's like nothing to do, which I know sounds like terrible to some people. But as I explained, that's that's my dream of heaven. So I, I sat on the beach. I read books. And, uh, uh, yeah, that was it. That's my idea of, of, of a good vacation. I was going to say, Chris, in recent years, I know you've, you've read a couple books or something. You didn't put anything down for what you've been reading. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about or not really that you've, been, uh, that you read on vacation? Actually, yeah, I read the new Stephen King book, which is called Billy Summers. Uh, oh. and, uh, it's good. I, you know, I, I love Stephen King. I, I've said that multiple times. Um, this isn't like one of his best books or anything like that, but you know, I feel like every Stephen King book is, uh, compulsively readable because he's just a very good writer. I know people don't, some people don't like to admit that, but uh, I think at this point we had to admit Stephen King is a very good writer. (laughs) Even if you don't, even if you don't like what he writes about, he knows how to, how to put uh, words on the page. So I, I, you know, I blew through this book. It's, it's a very good beach read because it's not too, uh, you know, you don't have to get, you don't have to think too hard about it. I don't want to say like, turn your brain off. Cause that's a stupid thing to say, but mm-hmm. you, you know, it's a very uh, easily, it's a very easy read and uh, I enjoyed it. And yeah. So, uh. all right. Uh, so let's get into what we've been watching. You and I have watched uh, a few things actually. Uh, we have some crossover here. So why don't you kick things off with untold malice at the palace? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know about you, Ben, but I don't know anything about sports. I don't follow sports. I don't watch sports. I just, you know, I, I know vague things about sports. Like I know who Michael Jordan is and stuff like that. You know, the stuff that's like common knowledge for everyone. But uh, I had never actually heard of this uh, event, this, this Malice at the Palace event. But I saw, uh, I actually saw I had a screener of it before it was even announced. And I was like, hmm, what is this? And I read the description, which uh, for those who don't know, for those like me who don't know, um, in 2004, uh, there was a basketball game between uh, the Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons. Uh, I'm looking this up, by the way, because I would not have remembered on my own. Um, and uh, the game descended into anarchy where players were running into the stands. Uh, fans were running out of the court. There were fist fights. It was just you know, pure chaos. And this was a very big deal in you know the sporting world. But again, I, I never heard of this. And I don't know if I'm just because... I just don't seek out news of sports or what, but I, 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 this was all news to me. And I was like, Hmm, that sounds interesting. So I watched it and I, you know, I really enjoyed this. Um, it's, it's very comprehensive. It interviews. Uh, I don't want to say everyone who's there because that would inquire of the entire stadium, but it interviews so <laughs> many people who were there and, you know, telling, you know, exactly what happened, what went down. And there's all this footage from the game. A lot of it, which has never been seen before. And I just thought it was really fascinating. Um, uh, you know, I, I may not like sports, but I do like a really well done sports documentary. Like I love the the Ken Burns baseball series and I really liked The Last Dance. So uh, if you, like me, don't care about sports, but 
care about these stories, I would recommend checking this out because this is this is a, a fascinating um, uh, look at, at what exactly happened during that game. Yeah, so I uh, remember watching this. I don't think I was watching that game live when it happened, uh, but I was definitely more into sports in 2004 when this was going on than I am now. And I was living with uh, at least one roommate, maybe two, who was like super into sports where like ESPN was on our TV like nonstop, basically. Um, So this was one of those stories that was just like, yeah, completely explosive and was just constantly all anybody talked about at that time. Um, so I remember the the details of this pretty well. I remember watching the replays of it, you know, a hundred times from every conceivable angle at, the, at that time. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like I didn't really have a great, um, uh, fully comprehensive understanding of every single aspect that went into this. And that's what this documentary provides, which I think it does a, a mostly good job. There are a couple little quibbles I have with, well, before I get to my qualms, there's this one stylistic choice that I thought was really cool, Chris. I don't know if it stood out to you, but occasionally they'll have um, these shots of uh, what appear to be small towns, like where the NBA players that they're talking about in that moment grew up and they will have, um, I don't have the director's name in front of me, but they, they staged a couple shots that are sort of like establishing shots of the small town in the background. And in the foreground, there's just a Jersey, an NBA Jersey of that player. And it's just floating there, like with nothing around it. And I thought that was a really cool visual that I'd never seen before. Did that that stick out to you? Yeah. I I think overall, this is really well directed. You know, uh, a lot of times documentaries like this, they, they sort of just point and shoot the camera at, at the people they're interviewing and they intercut it with uh, footage. And, you know, they do, do a version of that here, but the way they do a lot of the interviews, the way they're, they, they frame a lot of the interviews, I just thought was really interesting where like the camera is sometimes off to the side or depending on where the people are sitting when they're being interviewed. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I, it's, you know, this isn't like a, a, a lazy documentary. It's, it actually has like a visual flair to it, which is always appreciated. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I fully agree with that. There's a, a shot of um, Reggie Miller, who is one of the talking heads in this, and he's framed against like in a trophy room somewhere. Right. And my wife and I are like, is that his house? Like, is this just, <laughs> does he just have a trophy room in his own house like that? I wouldn't be surprised because he obviously has uh, a lot of trophies. But um, yeah, so so I guess my, my qualms with this are the at the beginning of this documentary, it says something like, you know, there's text on the screen that says something like, uh, you know, the... the the footage, all the footage from this event has never been available to the public. And I was expecting there to be a follow-up to that that says until now, but that part never came. So I spent the whole time wondering, okay, so is there footage that is still not available to the public that you don't have access to in this documentary? Are there still angles that we're not seeing here? Because I feel like the the documentary kind of loses the thread a little bit when it comes to Uh, Jermaine O'Neal, who's one of the characters that they sort of profile in the beginning of this thing as like an up and coming NBA rising star, one of the youngest players, if not the youngest player in the league at that time. And they spend a lot of time talking about him. And then the whole back half of the documentary, it seems like is focused on Ron Artest and Steven Jackson, who were like two of the guys that were, I guess, the biggest players involved in the brawling and all that stuff that went on. And I, you know, they, they spend a lot of time talking about um, Jermaine O'Neal and like the fallout of how it all of this sort of hit his career maybe harder than anybody else's and I kind of wanted to see more of like what Jermaine O'Neal 
was actually doing on the court when all of this was happening. Like they spend a lot of time, the director spent a lot of time, like making sure that you understand, okay, this is what Ron Artest was doing. He was laying down on this table, a fan threw a, a cup of beer at him from the stands. And there's a whole digression about how they pinpointed and figured out who that fan was that threw that beer that sort of sparked this entire incident. Um, and Steven Jackson sort of like, they interview him and he talks about coming over to defend Ron Artest from these, these fans that are fighting with him and everything. And Steven, or I'm sorry, and uh, Jermaine O'Neal just kind of gets lost in the fray a little bit. So I, I wish, I mean, it's, it's a relatively small quibble overall, but I just wish that we had more of a, a broader picture of like what he was doing, where he was, you know, coming from um, and all of that. So uh, yeah, that would be sort of my, my like nitpick with this thing. But uh, overall, especially if you don't know anything about the story, it is super fascinating and nothing like this has happened in professional sports since then. Um, so it's a, yeah, it was, it was and continu- continues to be a very big deal. Um, and untold malice at the palace, I think does a pretty good job of, of uh, yeah, telling that story. So that's on Netflix right now. Um, Chris, you and I also watched the white Lotus. So have you, I don't think we've, I don't think we've spoken about this um, on on this podcast. So what did you think about, uh, okay, so spoiler alert for the viewers or the listeners rather, um, the show wrapped up, I think this past Sunday. So we'll just be spoiling everything that happens in the White Lotus. So uh, Chris, what are your sort of broad thoughts on the show as a whole? And then what did you think about the way that it wrapped up? I really liked it. Um, I I sometimes have a problem with these sort of things. Um, I didn't watch it when it started. I I waited until I think like the, third to last episode is when I finally was like, ah, we better watch this. So my wife and I like binge through it. Um, I, I saw a lot of people being like, oh, this show, and for, I, I'm sorry for saying this, but this is the term all the kids use. They kept calling it quote unquote cringe, which makes me cringe when people say that. But also <laughs> I don't really like those sort of things. I don't like watching things that make you uncomfortable. Like I've never seen, uh, the the Bo Burnham movie eighth grade because everyone keeps talking everyone mm-hmm. when, when that came out everyone was like oh this movie made me feel terrible and I was like you know what I don't need to watch that I'm just not you know I, I and I never watched that show review which everyone talks about really well but they also say the same thing that it's it's that cringe sort of humor where everything that's happening is really really awkward and you feel really uncomfortable and I just don't that's just not my idea of uh, humor. Like I just don't care for that. So I was sort of hesitant to watch this because a lot of people were saying that about this too, but I didn't really find it to be that, uh, you know, the things that people are doing are cringeworthy, but I didn't find like the style of humor to be cringeworthy, if that makes sense. Um, but overall, I really liked this. I thought the cast was great. I thought it was a really interesting, uh, just look at, you know, these very privileged, clueless people and i really like uh i don't i shouldn't say i really like because it makes me sound like a monster but i really like how it ended on this really dark cynical note and i don't just mean uh you know a character dying which was teased from the first episode but i just mean the way how no one gets any sort of come up into here like everyone just goes back to their their normal awful rich people lives mm-hmm. and they don't really learn anything and that's such like a dark cynical ending and i know that's not going to sit right with everyone but that feels incredibly realistic to me like that is how if this situation happened in real life i feel like it would pretty much end the way it ends here where no one learns anything and everyone is just like all right that was our vacation back to our rich 
rich people lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like my, um, I was a little mixed on the finale. I liked the show a lot up until that point. And I, I'm still, I guess, sort of working out my thoughts on it. I just, in the moment I was not, um, I was not super, uh, narratively satisfied with the finale. And I think that's like ultimately the, the feeling that Mike White, the creator and writer and director of the show wanted to give like the, um, the fact that Rachel, the, the Rachel character comes back to Shane at the end. Like I'm, I'm sitting there thinking you've already done the hard work of like, you know, uh, confronting him and like having this big emotional, um, scene in the, in the hotel where you like lay it out all in the line and like, you know, uh, the hard part essentially has been done. Like you, you've, <laughs> you've, uh, you've crossed the bridge already and now you're just like undoing all of that work to, um, to stay in this, what is evidently a, a terrible relationship. Um, so I, I was like disappointed in that from a narrative sense, but I, on the other hand, I kind of see where you're coming from, Chris, where it sort of feels like, you yeah, know, I guess like, that, that would be the realistic kind of thing that happens, but there's a, you know, I, I see, oh, I go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, I, I see where you're coming from, but I, I really love that because I feel like the show is trying to say that even though the, that Rachel character keeps trying to seem like she's above all this, she's just as bad as everyone else at right. this resort. And that's what I kind of loved about that ending. It doesn't, it doesn't let her have like, you know, it sets it up to have it to be like, ah, you know, strong, independent woman power. And in the end, she's just like, Never mind. I'll st- I'll stay married to this rich man who murdered someone. Although I, what do you think she knows? He committed that. You know that. I, I guess it's not technically murder because he gets away with it. But uh, I guess manslaughter would be the term that you like. I you know it's not really. Uh, we don't really know if she knows he did it or not. And there's a part of me that thinks she doesn't know, but there's a part of me that thinks that she does know, which makes the ending like 10 times darker. Yeah, I I think she does and I think it's it's 10 times darker. I think that's yeah. the ending that you're talking about. My my uh wife and I watched it together and she pointed out to me like I think the next day or something after it aired that like the last thing one of the last things that Rachel says to Shane at their dinner is uh the Armand character uh, walks by in the background and Shane makes some sort of quip or something. And she's like, will you just leave that poor man alone? And yeah. then, like that night ends with, with Shane murdering him. And then Rachel going back to him after that, which yeah. is just, yeah, man, like talk about dark, but um, my question to, to her, and now I'll pose it to you. Do you think that, <laughs> do you think that Rachel and Shane uh, continued their honeymoon onto Tahiti as planned after in the wake of that murder? I do. I think they continued that. And I think they continued their life and they ended up having shitty kids and they were, sh- <laughs> they ended up sleeping in separate bedrooms in some huge house and they, they stayed married all the way into the future. And <sighs> she, uh, you know, took she took the easy way out I, I genuinely think that's what happened here and again i don't think that's a good thing but i love the show for having the guts to be like well, we're gonna do this we're gonna end we're we're not gonna give you the happy ending that you want and yeah uh, sometimes that can backfire and sometimes i think it worked and and here i think it really worked and i also want to just give a shout out to just the cast across the board was just so good here. especially murray bartlett who plays armand who i have never even heard of before but he was so good i want to see him in like everything now because he was so good here yeah yeah i totally agree and i'd never seen him in anything either um 
let's see. I feel like this might be one of the last chances we have to really talk about this first season because I, I know they greenlit it for a second season. Peter and I talked about that on a previous episode of the show. So maybe we'll talk about season two a little bit more in depth once that gets around to airing in a, in a year or two or whenever. Um, but, uh, oh, the the Quinn plot line. What did you think about that? How, how that, uh, you know, how that ended? I don't know what to make of that, honestly. Um, I like the plot line, but even my wife was like, is this like a dream? Cause it shows him like, like, you know, he runs away from the airport at the end that he gets on the, whatever it is, the kayak the canoe thing, the yeah. canoe. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, how is he like living there? He has right. no money. He's 16 years. Like, I guess it's possible. He managed to pull that off. But a part of me wonders if that's like some sort of fantasy, but the show doesn't really have any other scenes like that where characters have like elaborate fantasies. So if it is a fantasy, it's kind of a cheat. So I guess it really is happening. But again, (sighs) I don't know how. It's a weird thing because I feel like the show is like pretty realistic about the logistics of, of how things work until you get to that moment. Like I think I heard somebody say, like there's no way that Steve's on and and the rest of the family members would have like allowed that plane to take off without the kid on it. And like, I, you know, there's a part of me that kind of, is like, I don't want to get that pedantic about, you know, that that nitpicky about stuff. Like, I understand that uh, storytellers can take some liberties to, you know, hit an emotional beat or whatever. And like, you kind of have to be okay with that at a certain point at an, as an audience. But at the same time, like the show, this is the, the only instance, I think, that the show kind of took a swing that was quite that big in terms of a logic leap that, that yeah, I, I didn't even really think about is this a fantasy? But, um, but that almost makes more sense to me than, you know, him getting away with it because like, what are you saying? Like, you know, he, he's 16. How is he affording this and all of that? So, yeah. But Um, man, I love the way this show looks, just those shots of just like the, the water and the, the sunsets and the, Oh, it's, it's just a gorgeous show. And the music was so weird and and anxiety inducing. So (laughs) there's just so much I, I, I really love about the show. And I'm, I looked this up. Uh, the act, they shot in an actual resort, and I think it costs like what, like the cheapest room. They're like there's different tiers of rooms. And I looked this mm-hmm. up just for the hell of it, and I think like the cheapest room. This is the cheapest room for one night is five thousand dollars. That's just one night. Okay, that's, so that's the cheapest. <laughs> so so that must have changed because uh, my wife and I stayed at that hotel for one night during our honeymoon. Wow, and. Uh, we went to Hawaii for, I want to say it was maybe four or five days or something like that for our honeymoon. And we were just like, man, let's, let's like, you know, like, let's go all out. Let's celebrate. Yeah. You know, I want to stay in a really nice place. And we saw the price and we were like, all right, so let's do one night at this place. Um, and it was not anywhere near $5,000. So, because I absolutely would not have been able to afford that. So, uh, that was in 2014. So things yeah. very well could have, uh, they could have upgraded uh, substantially since then. But, um, but yeah, the, so that was, that was kind of a cool thing to, to be like, Oh yeah. I remember like eating breakfast right there where they're always, you know, I remember when there eating, was a but... murder here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So then uh, let's see. Oh, any other uh, final thoughts about white Lotus? Any other aspects you wanted to touch on? No, I just, I liked it overall and I'm very curious to see what they do with this second season. You know, there's a part of me, I said this before for other shows where I'm okay with things ending. And a part of me was, would have been fine if this was like a one and done season, but I do like that. They are going to have like whole new characters at a whole different white Lotus resort. That said, um, 
I feel like if they get to like a third season, by the third time a White Lotus resort has something like this happening, they're going to be like, we need to shut this resort down. Bad stuff keeps happening here. But then you got to think about the Jurassic Park uh, of yeah, it all. That's I'm true. Like, <laughs> and also how stupid everyone is. Like, you know, people are like, ah, there's a pandemic, eh? I don't care. They're going to be like, ah, there's a murder resort, eh? I'm going to go stay there. <laughs> all right. So uh, I guess on the totally other end of the, the opposite end of the spectrum, we also watched the first two episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine season eight, which I kind of forgot was happening. And, and they just showed up in my DVR early. Uh, I guess it was Thursday of last week. And I was like, oh, I'm pleasantly surprised. Here's this show that I love. There's new episodes. So, um, you know, there's a bit of a different tone, I think is safe to say, in uh, in this season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine after the George Floyd murder last year and the show famously like threw out, I think it's first four scripts um, at, because they're trying to grapple with uh, what it means to make a show about police officers in uh, a post-2020 landscape. So, um, you know, I guess that's one episode of the show. The other one kind of like took them completely out of the police station. And you almost wouldn't have even known that they were cops if you were only to watch that show, you know, in isolate that episode in isolation. But uh, what did you think about these first two episodes, Chris? Uh, yeah, I... I thought they were good. I, you know, I laughed, uh, many times. Um, you know, I love this show. Uh, I'm also perfectly fine with the show ending at this point, not just because, you know, it's just weird to have a goofy cop show right now, but also because I do feel like the show has sort of like run its course. There's not much else it can do. Um, you know, I appreciate that they're, they're trying, they're like, you know, not playing dumb and, and just ignoring current events. And I, you know, I feel like that first episode was a little, heavy handed with the, the Rosa and, and Jake stuff, just the way that like they keep just saying out loud, all the bad stuff cops do. Mm -hmm. And it's like, look, that stuff is true, but just like having the characters say it seems, I don't know, lazy, but at the same time, you know, that's, it's a very broad show. It's not a subtle show. So I guess that's really the only way they could address it. But, you know, I, I, I do think they did the best job they possibly could. And you know, I've, I've always had a dis I've always been able to have this show disconnect from reality. Cause it's such a goofy show. Like I've never watched this show and once been like, this is what real cops are like, because wait, you mean the people at your local precinct aren't doing uh, <laughs> Halloween heists every yeah. year. <laughs> so like, yeah, I've, you know, why I understand the, the argument that like, we should not have, you know, we should not have so many cop shows in general and we should not have goofy cops out there. I, you know, I've, I've never been, you know, ah, this is like real cops. At the same time, I'm also, you know, a white guy who has never really experienced police uh, discrimination of any kind. So who am I to talk? But, um, you know, I, I appreciate the show is is addressing this head on. I appreciate that they're, you know, they're not going to shy away from it and they're going to try to do the best they can with what they have. And I, I you know, I, I think they're going to stick the landing overall based on these two episodes. Yeah, I hope so. I think it's a shortened season uh, this season. I, and I want to say they're doing um, like a weird release schedule where they're doing two episodes every Thursday um, yeah. and, and until the, the season is over. So that's, that's a, a different release pattern than the, what they've done before. So just uh, in case any fans of the show out there are not aware of that, make sure that you uh, set your DVRs accordingly or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with everything you said there. I think I'm, I'm excited to watch the show and I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, Andre Browers. I mean, he, he, as Captain Holt, he's like, he's one of my favorite uh, TV characters right now. And that moment in the, I think it was the premiere episode where he and uh, Amy talk about the troubles that he 
has been having with Kevin and and in his relationship and how the show just goes from this really lighthearted, uh, you know, like you said, sort of goofy tone to, you know, you can snap your fingers and he is just like super serious and like just breaks your heart with, uh, with the way that he delivers lines and, and, uh, man, it's just, it's such a, a tightrope walk, but, um, it's so well done. And it's, it's part of the reason that I love the show is that it can sort of swing back and forth between those two points, um, really effectively. So, absolutely, absolutely. um, all right. So then, uh, real quick, a couple other things I've been watching. I caught up with the, uh, season one finale of Harley Quinn, the animated show on HBO max. I don't really have much to add. I talked about the show earlier um, and I just, I love how, how ridiculous and funny it is. It's kind of show that feels like it was written by people who came up on Twitter at the same time that we did. And that seems, that might seem insulting to some people, but there is, you know, like the early days of Twitter before it became the kind of hellscape that it is right now, there were just a lot of people making really funny jokes on Twitter. And I think Justin Halpern and Patrick Schumacher, the, the guys who create the show, actually kind of got their start legitimately by, you know, being in that ecosystem and, and just like pumping out jokes and, and sort of developing their comedic sensibilities in that early era of Twitter. And that's an era that I, you know, that's one of those things where I sort of like look back on it fondly now and didn't realize how good we had it <laughs> at that time. Um, but a lot of the, I guess if you're like in your whatever, early to, to mid thirties, a lot of the references that are made in the show are probably going to land pretty squarely with you. Um, whereas I, I can see if you're a younger fan coming to this show, there might be some references that, um, that, <laughs> that might go a little bit over your head just because, uh, they're, they're so specific with their humor. Um, so I, I appreciate that about that show, even if it can be a little bit alienating to some people maybe, but, uh, Harley Quinn season one is on HBO max right now. Uh, the second season is also there. I'm going to slowly be making my way through that. Maybe I'll be able to time finishing up season two by the time the third season comes out. So I know that's been ordered. I'm not sure exactly when that's supposed to hit. So that's Harley Quinn. And then the, uh, another HBO uh, Max show that I've been watching is uh, Hacks. Um, my wife and I f- basically flew through all of the episodes of that. Um, and it's a half hour show. And uh, I love those like 10 episode half hour shows. They're um, they're so nice compared to like all the longer, you know, hour long ones where you really are just like locked in. Um, and Hacks, I thought was just really, really well done. I'm not going to say too much more about it, especially since I just wrote about it in a, a daily stream for Slash Film yesterday. So maybe I'll link to that in the show notes if you want to get more of my thoughts. But uh, I just want to recommend the show. Um, Hannah Eindbacher, I think it's is how you pronounce her name, or Eindbinder. Um, she is is very good. I know Gene Smart gets a lot of the, um, the praise for the show, and that is deserved because Gene Smart is a national treasure. But uh, this new actress who has never been in anything before, I think did a really good job at sort of shouldering essentially half of the drama in, in this entire show. So um, Hacks, it's very good. Uh, have you seen Hacks yet, Chris? No, I don't even know what it's about. I just know that Gene Smart is on the show. That's all oh. I saw. Okay, so Gene Smart plays a uh, a Vegas comedian who is like a she's been a, a stand up comedian for like thirty plus years and is sort of like one of the um, the old hats in the industry and she has this residency in Vegas and uh, she shares a manager with a young up and coming uh, like screenwriter who lives in L A and this young screenwriter uh, tweets something controversial and essentially gets canceled and gets like booted from her job and nobody in LA will hire her. And this manager sort of decides, okay, I'm going to put these two people together and have this young writer work for this, um, you know, this this sort of OG comedian and have her try to 
uh, write some new stuff and like, you know, freshen up her act, which is getting a little stale. And it's basically just about this, um, you know, the, the way that I just uh, set that up kind of makes it seem like it's a show where you've got a, a young person sassing a dinosaur and then, you know, talking was, back and forth about like, oh, this is the way that Gen Z does things. And no, you, back in my day, it was this. Like, it's not that. Uh, I was going to say, this sounds a <laughs> lot like that movie Late Night with Mindy Kaling and Emma Thompson, yes. which both both you and I did not like at all, even though yeah. everyone at, at Sundance was like, that was hilarious. And you and I were yeah. sitting in the theater stone silent as everyone <laughs> laughed around us. Yeah, and in retrospect, I really like that we were seem we're seemingly the only two people in that theater yeah. who didn't like that movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it kind of has a little bit of that vibe on paper, but it's a much different kind of thing. It, it's much more about the drama between these characters. Everybody feels super um, like human instead of uh, a caricature, uh, and. Um, the supporting cast, I think, is is what really sort of helps build the show out and make it feel like more than just the two-hander that it looks like on paper. And it really makes it feel like a real lived-in, like, you know, you get to see sort of behind the scenes of what Las Vegas life is really like for somebody who's at a residency like that. She's She, she is uh, Deborah Vance, the comedian character, the Gene Smart character, is living in this super, you know, huge mansion or whatever just outside of the city. But everybody else that she sort of works with or works for her are like going, you know, on uh, the the sort of underground tunnels of all the casinos and like the back rooms and like eating at these crappy buffets that are at the for the employees and all of this. So you get to sort of see a side of Vegas that is um, sort of counter to the traditional uh, swingers esque, you know, glam kind of vibe that that Vegas always has in movies and TV shows. So uh, hacks, it's very good. Check it out. Uh, all right, so Chris, you've been watching a couple other things too, right? Uh, yes, I watched uh, Demonic, which is the new movie from Neil Blomkamp, who, of course, directed District 9 and and Chappie and uh, Elysium. And uh, this is his first horror movie. Those other movies were all sci-fi. And there was a part of me, man, that was like, all right, maybe, maybe Neil Blomkamp will get his mojo back because I feel like everyone can pretty much agree that District 9 was his best movie and then everything after that was just not as good or mm-hmm. really bad. I guess it depends. I know there are some people who inexplicably say, I liked Chappie, which <laughs> whatever you say, weirdo. That movie. <laughs> but I think we can all agree. He's, he's never been able to top uh, district nine. So I was like, all right, maybe, maybe switching to a different genre will uh, be good for him. But no, uh, this is a bad movie. Uh, it's not even bad in like a fun way. It's just like, Ugh, who cares? Like when it was over, I was just like, what a, what a waste of time. Um, it's, you know, it's basically, you know, it's a demonic possession movie, but it throws in like technology because Neil Blomkamp loves technology. And it, uh, basically, I hate giving this explanation because it makes the movie sound more exciting than it is. So please do not get fooled by what I'm about to say. <laughs> so the Vatican has set up this, computer simulation that looks like the sims and you can upload people's minds into it and then you can also go into the simulation so it's like going into people's minds which is basically the plot of the movie the cell if you ever saw that with jennifer lopez Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so the idea here is the vatican has has uh uploaded this woman's mind into a computer and the woman is possessed by a demon 
and her daughter tries to get through to her. It's just very stupid. Like you could make something fun with that idea, but Neil Blomkamp does not know how to do that. So it's just a really, really boring movie that just, you know, don't even bother. Hmm. You know. <laughs> yeah. This sounds like something that Jacob will watch while drunk one day. And yeah. uh, that's about the extent of it. I, I yeah, <laughs> you have not sold me on this. So I think mission accomplished there. Chris. <laughs> okay, good. Phew. Uh, and then I watched um, Showtime has this three part uh, mini series on UFOs, which is produced by JJ Abrams. And uh, I'm a sucker for these sorts of things, these these documentaries about, uh, you know, the, the unexplained and the supernatural and, and uh, the uh, the otherworldly. Um, I uh, I don't when it comes to like aliens and stuff like that, I'm willing to accept that maybe somewhere out there because, the you know, the galaxy and the universe and and so on. It's so vast and there are so much things we have yet to even come close to exploring. So. I'm I'm perfectly willing to believe that yes, maybe somewhere out there there's some sort of alien life, but I do not for a second believe aliens are uh, flying saucers around Earth all the time and you know <laughs> or built the pyramids or whatever. Yeah, I do not believe any of that. That's all nonsense. So uh, you know, despite my non-belief in that stuff, I love watching stuff about this. I can't explain why. But anyway. I was looking forward to this because I watch a lot of stuff like this and a lot of it is really cheaply made. You know, it's, it's shit basically. <laughs> and this is really well produced. It's very slick. It's very, you know, it had, it had a budget because JJ Abrams is involved with it. Um, that said, it doesn't really shed anything new on, on the topic. I was kind of hoping this would be like the definitive UFO documentary, like the UFO documentary to end all UFO documentaries. <laughs> And it's, it's really not. I mean, it approaches it from a, a level-headed way. It's, it's, it's not like, you know, there are people on here who say they believe in this stuff, but it's not like tilting one way or another. So it, it's uh, objective, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Um, and if you like these sort of documentaries, you'll probably enjoy this. But it, it wasn't as good as I was hoping it was going to be. Yeah, I, I remember when we were talking about this, when the trailer came out, that we were like hoping that they would have saved some sort of reveal for the show itself, like new information or something. It sounds like that wasn't the case here. So yeah, not really. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, the jumping off point of this is in 2017, the New York times published this article about how uh, the Pentagon had been secretly studying UFOs for years. And, you know, that stuff is interesting, but it doesn't mean, you know, there are aliens floating around. It just means something <laughs> else. So I, I, I would say if you're interested in this topic, it's worth watching, but don't don't expect to see anything here that you haven't seen in, you know, uh, or a history channel UFO thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So that is just called UFO and it is on Showtime. Is it on there now or is it coming think, out soon? Or? Yeah, I think all three episodes are on there now on Showtime. OK, cool. All right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Uh, Chris, why don't you tell people where they can find your work online? Uh, always at SlashFilm.com and I am on Twitter at CEvangelista413. You can find me at SlashFilm.com as well. You can find my tweets at Twitter.com slash BenPairs and uh, Instagram.com slash BenPairs as well. You can find more about um, you know all sorts of stuff that we've got going on at SlashFilm.com. I, I just encourage everybody to go there multiple times a day. Just click around. We have a ton of stories publishing all the time, so there's always going to be something there that you're interested in. 
Flashpoint Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashom.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.